0: It's the Wonky Show Live. The King has given a speech we'll pick through for implications for HE. We've got polling on students and food, and there's a new report on universities
1: and the workforce of the future. It's all coming up. By implementing that policy as it's written, it's going to be a bloody disaster. Um, They will want to work with you to create a a smoother implementation or a better implementation. So you can really change things quite a lot at that stage. Mm
0: Welcome to the Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy, and analysis. We're live this week at our Festival of Higher Education here at Senate House at the University of London, where over 500 wonks and valued hangers-on have been debating the future of the sector. Uh, I'm Wonky's associate editor Jim Dickinson, and I'm here to give us a sense of the chit-chat across the croissants, as usual. Three fabulous guests: uh, Alistair Jarvis is Pro Vice-Chancellor for Partnerships and Governance at the University of London. Alistair, your highlight of the festival
1: oh it's tough to pick Um, it has to be either David Aronovich or Sundar Katwala Um, conversations brilliant uh, political insights uh, and so witty David Aronovich particularly hope so witty
0: yes excellent stuff and Eve Alcock is director of public affairs at the Quality Assurance Agency Eve your highlight of the festival
2: I think mine has to be the discussion about the TEF in the amazing Senate room. I felt like I was in a sort of episode of Law and Order in there. It was fantastic.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And Debbie McVitie is editor at Wonky. Debbie, your highlight of the festival.
3: Um, well, one of the things that I knew that we wanted to do with the festival was was really try and get some higher education leaders, heads of institution who would talk really honestly about how bloody difficult it is to run an institution these days, and how they kind of how they're kind of stepping up to those challenges. Um, and we had uh, some fantastic leaders yesterday, particularly Giddy Normington at, at De Montford, um, and Gisette Bishalmingo from Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, talking with such honesty and vulnerability about about their challenges and how the, and how they face them. Um, and it was a really it was a really cracking session. It was a real honour to be on the stage with them.
0: Great stuff. Now we start this week with the King. Tuesday, saw the state opening of Parliament and there's a bunch of bills to get across, Eve.
2: There are. So, uh, this is the King's Speech setting out the sort of legislative agenda for the next parliamentary session. Um, And I guess the context to this is that it's the last parliamentary session before a a rumoured general election. The government are sort of up for, I guess, current government, a tough a tough kind of fight, um, and therefore are looking for any lines to draw between themselves and Labour. Um, the speech mentioned, I think it's 2021 20, bills, um, a couple of which have bearing on the sector. So we've got the Renters Reform Bill, Economics Activity Bill. And there's some stuff on digital, um, but perhaps predictably, most notably for me, from a kind of quality perspective. Uh, so most notably for me was um, some remarks that the King made. Made a ba- about poor quality courses in the higher education sector.
0: And we've got a clip. Let's have a listen. My ministers will strengthen education for the long term. Steps will be taken to ensure young people have the knowledge and skills to succeed through the introduction of the Advanced British Standard that will bring technical and academic roots into a single qualification. Proposals will be implemented to reduce the number of young people studying poor-quality university degrees and increase the number undertaking
4: high-quality apprenticeship.
0: Wow, Alistair, this was pretty thin, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, it was all about the politics and very little policy. I mean, it, it felt very much like a, a king's speech of a sort of dying government right sort of near the end. I mean, you, most of these bills will never actually... Um, well, we'll never get through Parliament. Um, they'll, they'll be timed out. Um, they've tried to create sort of wedge issues, but frankly, I think even on the wedge issues, they've probably got minority support in the public for an awful lot of the, these things. Um, you also got to ask sort of if these are really important priorities what have they been doing for the last 13 years? Because we've had a Conservative Prime minister for 13 years and now they're doing a bill on this and that and the other. So, yeah, I think it's got a very much end-of-government sort of feel to it. Um, I think they know... They expect to lose the next election. It's about rallying their base. It's about sort of trying to get some kind of... Throw some red meat to the, um, some of the, the Conservative Party members, uh, but really thin in terms of serious policy.
0: And this line on low-value courses, this is, I mean, this is another run-out sort of nudging OFS to... To, to crack on with things. Is, is that really... Is that's it in terms of the, the Conservative manifesto, isn't it? I mean, are we, are yeah. we likely so, to see anything
1: else? So, so when you hear ministers making those kind of remarks or putting them in King's speeches or indeed writing letters to the sector, it's because they haven't got the power to do something... <laughs> So they're they're frustrated, they want to be able to do something, but they either aren't being given the legislative time to sort of get it in, or they have no powers, or their regulator doesn't have significant enough powers. Um, And therefore, this is kind of a minister thinking, well, actually... Um, I can't do anything about this. I haven't got the tools, the tools to do it. Um, so I'm going to get at the king to say it, <laughs> uh, which is kind of, kind of pretty pathetic, really, isn't
0: it? There you go. Now, Debbie, you've been uh, looking at the detail of some of the, uh, the, the, the rest of the legislative program, to the extent to which we could call it that. What, what else is, what else is potentially interesting in there?
3: Well, uh, looking at the detail might be an overstatement, but um, one, one thing, and I, I remember actually because a couple of months ago we had one of our wonky live briefings, and someone asked the question about the implication of Martin's Law for higher education, and I. I thought is there's some kind of massive agenda <laughs> that we've, we've somehow missed and you know who do I need to sack um but actually this is a this is something that had been mooted at that point and hadn't and there's of course not going to be put into legislation this is a bill um to require public bodies to uh, make provision against acts of terrorism this, this it's, it's been brought in the wake of the Manchester arena bombing um and it's essentially designed to kind of strengthen uh, sort of security so th- this you know the implications of this is that universities will need to put plans in place uh, to to sort of to you know, in 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 the event of, a, of of a terrorist attack, and of course, you know, we will have to wait for the detail to see what that involves. But it strikes me that, given the politics of the moment how we def- you know, obviously we sort of know what a terrorist attack is, um, and, 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 you know, we assume it involves violence as well, but, you know, if you think about some of the kind of challenges uh, that universities have around protest, around um, the sorts of, sorts of activities um, that are, you know, th- that would be seen as, as being very disruptive, um, it, it's, it's a little bit, you know, I think it's something that the sector might want to keep an eye on um, in terms of how generous we're defining terrorism.
0: Yeah, I guess if, if, if the government was minded to do this stuff that uh, Suella Braverman's been kind of pushing around extremism and you know, broadening the definition of extremism, that this is a bill they might suddenly start attaching amendments to. That. Yes,
3: suddenly becomes this vehicle for kind of, let's, yeah. ha- let, let, let's use this as a staging post for a debate about, um, you know, the pro- problematic conversations on campus, problematic opinions, perhaps perhaps terrorism as defined, you know, support for prescribed organisations or, or, or yeah. you know, interpretation of, of words that are interpreted as being support for prescribed yeah. organisations. So it is something that I think well, you know, it's, it's only really only very peripherally involved with universities and actually is deter- you know, intended for a very positive purpose, you know, sort of keep everybody safe. Yeah. Um, it's, this is not a government that we necessarily trust to um, <sighs> implement that in a considered and thoughtful way.
0: Yeah, well, interesting, interesting. Now, uh, Eve, there's also potentially some interesting implications. So I, I think one of the things they're going to do is repeal some European law on consumer protection, replace it with their own, add some bits that are about online fake reviews now in theory someone telling me that some gadget on amazon is brilliant when it isn't really hasn't got a lot to do with he but it might have some stuff to do with he mightn't it
2: yeah so um this for me comes back to uh, a practice that that universities do quite a lot and has been increasing um over the past sort of five years, which is using students and student voice to talk about how brilliant the institution is or aspects of the institution for marketing purposes. Now, there are plenty of instances where that genuinely chimes with a student's experience and it makes for really good and innovative and engaging kind of student-led marketing for the the institution. But um, certainly when I was uh, a Students' Union president, there was some practice of this that I saw in the sector that was um, kind of incentivized by paying students because it was part a way to get part-time work and they would do a sort of day in the life vlog or whatever that might be and so there's something interesting here about how how far away from the genuine thoughts of that student does that marketing material material become before it gets deemed a fake review yeah. um
0: Yes, interesting. And, and, and Alistair, I know that you're a big user of TikTok. <laughs> um, you will know, I think, from reading the site, that one of my little hobbies now and again is to look at what some universities, agents, students that are being recruited by those agents are saying about universities, often in, you know, in, in other countries or perhaps in, in franchise provision. This, this is something to keep an eye
1: on, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think it is. I, I mean, I think there's, um, there's the bits that universities directly control and with a few exceptions most universities frankly kind of know where the the legal boundaries are but also don't just don't want to produce things that are misleading students you know no university is still there they go actually I want to really try and trick some students into coming here that (laughs) isn't the approach I think what I'm a bit more concerned about is some of the third parties Mm -hmm. and you know there there are organizations whose you know business model is clearly um, dependent on them uh, attracting students they will sell their services to universities to say that we will you know get uh, be able to recruit students for you and I think there are sometimes some practices by some of those third parties that that are um, are worrying, um, and I think it's really quite hard to do anything about that, actually, because um, the universities will likely not have very much control over those, so really they either end the relationship if they spot it, or, or uh, they a little of the control. Uh, and, of course, um, governments can't do much about it because a lot of it's international. Yeah. So, you know, unless you have a, a, you know, a, a global law on it, which mm. you know, isn't going to happen, yeah. uh, you know, it's kind of um, pretty unregulated, some parts of it. Yeah, it's tricky, tricky stuff.
0: Now, now, now Debbie, just, just in terms of the kind of run-up to the election... Obviously, one of the things we like to do is kind of hang off anything the Minister or Secretary of State ever says, but we really are pretty much now in a holding pattern, aren't we?
3: Yes, I think there's, I mean, in some of the, some of the kind of behind the scenes conversations we've been having, um, and actually some of the very much on the stage conversations <laughs> as well, is about saying, do you know what, and this is, you know, don't stop reading, Wonky, But but sort of maybe forget about the policy environment for a bit. You know, every you know that thing about we'll keep you up to date with every twist and turn. You know, maybe that's actually not the most important thing. Um, there's a window, I think, for uh, a bit of regrouping, a bit of thinking. You know, the universities and, and you know all providers of higher education facing some really significant challenges. You know that have been well you know well, well, well enumerated. We don't need to go through them. Um, this is a kind of moment to. to take a step back to maybe do some of that kind of thinking analysis, talk to some stakeholders, think about what, what is the ask of the next government, whatever flavour that might be. Mm. You know, the detail of the, you know, the day-to-day policy twists and turns is, is a sort of, you know, the, the death throes of a, of a dying government, really, not a, not a thing that is going to be shaping the future of higher education for years to come. And actually, the, the best thing the sector could do is focus on the future, not, not worry so much about yeah. the present right now.
0: But, I mean, in, in many ways, Eve, I guess, you know, really what we're going to be focused on, to the extent to which there's anything to focus on, is how different actors implement existing policy agendas, right? I mean, you know, the point about the low-value courses quote is it's a quality issue. And, Mm. you know, there there are different definitions of quality, aren't there?
2: Yeah, of course. And I think the thing... So people get quite hung up on student number controls as a method to... um, I guess, incentivize good quality but punish poor quality. I think the, the thing, in a way, that, that is more important to, to look at first is the method via which you arrive at a judgement that means that maybe student number controls is the answer to, to the problem. And I, I think um, people broadly, kind of at a philosophical level, wouldn't argue that lots of students should be going to courses that don't benefit them, but... It's about the process of how you reach that mm. judgment. And I think it's the process that we have in place that people are nervous about uh, putting a policy like that at, at, at the sort of end point. So if there was more transparency and more con- contextualization and people trusted the process to make the judgment on that, then I think there would be less resistance to the actual sort of regulatory intervention that came yeah. out as a result of it.
0: And, and Alistair, I guess, you know, the other... Particularly for... Um universities in England, the other big implementation piece over the next year or so is going to be OFS on harassment on the one side and free speech and, you know, you would hope, I guess, that there will be a moment to at least reflect on some of the complexity that people have been handling over the past three or four weeks.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things about um, influencing policy is that influencing the implementation is often more important than influencing the policy itself. Uh, And in fact, sometimes actually it's not worth trying to influence the policy itself because a government has decided to do something, they've got a majority, they're going to get the policy in place. But of course, policies are just something written on a bit of paper until they're actually... um, uh, you actually see action coming out of the the, the, the other other end of them. Um, And that's where you can really influence things. And I, I think the sector has got a really important job to do over the next year, not worrying about what's in the King's speech or even what the ministers are sort of saying on... Uh, in the newspapers or, uh, you know, on TV, it's actually looking at what's already in policy and how that's implemented. And I think, you know, there you can really shape it, you can really influence it, you can frustrate it if you don't like it, you can kind of um, smooth the rough edges over, you can improve it. There's an awful lot you can do in influencing the implementation. And also, interestingly, often you find civil servants are kind of helpful in that, (laughs) because they, they actually want to implement something and they don't want to cause a complete disaster in the implementation so if you say to them by implementing that policy as it's written it's going to be a bloody disaster um they will want to work with you to create a, a smoother implementation or a better implementation. So you can really change things quite a lot at that stage. Mm.
0: Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess technically, Arif Ahmed right now is a, is a civil servant, Debbie. Mm. You, you've spoken to Arif Ahmed before we did his speech at King's the, the other week. That's a really set of complicated issues where, um, you know, the new director of academic freedom and freedom of speech has kind of gone from a character in the debate to you know, adopting this regulatory persona. That is going to be really interesting, isn't it?
3: Yes, and of course, I mean, as Alistair alluded to, the nature of the bill process is is that no point really does anybody ever say... That, that's not going to work. I mean, people try to say it, <laughs> but, but, you know... I have tried a lot. <laughs> so, you know, the, but, the, well, yeah, you, uh, anyone really... Yeah, people are sort of fed up with you saying it, but, you know, sort of saying, you know, you can't run a complaint scheme like this because of this, and, and he's now got to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, and his, and his really clear message when, when, when we spoke a few weeks ago um, was just about sort of... I want. I need this. I kind of need the sector to tell me. You know, I need to hear from student unions. I need to hear from universities. I need to hear from colleges, and, and you know, and really understand what these processes might look like, um, so that you know, because you know, he's someone who does believe passionately in free speech. I think. Perhaps, you know, I think perhaps this sort of sense of the nuance of that is probably going to develop, not to be patronising, but I suspect, you know, when you're in these roles, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're, you bring a hinterland and then your kind of sense of, of the kind of complexities of the landscape, really, 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 you bring a lot of depth to that um, over time. Um, you know, it, 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 is, it is conceivable that what we have is something that works, works sort of just about okay, um, and, and, the, and, a, and a sort of settlement can be reached around that sort of thing. And I think, you know, it, it really is very much incumbent on anyone who's affected by those policies to really engage with that.
0: Now, fascinating stuff. Uh, uh, there th- th- will be an election at some point, just before we move off this. Um, bets on when, Eve?
2: May next
0: year. May. Ooh. Very interesting. And why? Wild guess, honestly. Wild guess. You <laughs> yeah, get quite good odds on May. Changes from week to uh, week. William Hill.
3: <laughs> um, I, I put this question the other week to a former quite senior civil servant in DFE, and he was very clear that it would be in the third week of October.
0: <laughs> right, so okay. very clear. Very specific, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very specific. Uh, Alistair?
1: I think uh, autumn next year, I think uh, there'll be lots of meetings at Downing Street where they say, shall we go for an election in a couple of months' time? And everyone sort of says, well, oh, no, not, not now, let's wait a bit longer. And they'll keep pushing it back and back and back. But I think you, you get to sort of, the Christmas period, I think it's too late and not going really around the Christmas period. It would look really desperate doing it in January, which is really last ditch. So I think we're looking at, mm. at autumn because um, there'll always be that hope that maybe things will get slightly better. <laughs> so they'll keep pushing it back to the autumn, I think.
0: Wow, fascinating stuff. Good. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
4: Hi, I'm Lydia Fletcher and this week on Wonky, myself and Billy Wong have been blogging about the interesting challenges of picking out suitable evaluation instruments to measure intervention strategy activities. So here at the University of Reading, we completed our access and participation plan as part of the so-called first wave. And when looking at intermediate outcome measures, in order to maximise validity and robustness, we want to ideally use validated instruments such as the Taso Access and Success Questionnaire. However, these don't always work wholesale for practitioners who feel that combinations of questionnaires or bespoke questions actually better capture their intended outcomes. So it's our job to strike the balance between ideal-world validated measures and real-world pragmatic measures uh, to reach a conclusion that works for all stakeholders. Um, We use the analogy of evaluation being um, like a pick-and-mix sweet shop, but where some types of sweet aren't meant to be sold separately. And we recommend using whole validated measures where possible, but if not, then at least using subscales from these measures so that analysis can be done separately on that.
3: Now, next
0: up, uh, we've published some new polling data on food, Debbie. Yes.
3: So this is the first kind of big tranche of our, uh, part- of our, of our belong um, uh, student, student insight uh, platform, which we're doing in partnership with Sybil. And um, We've got students' unions are subscribing. Um, if, if you are, if you are a, a student union subscriber to Monkey, you can, you can get involved for free. Um, and we're asking a number of questions on, 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 a, on a regular basis. Uh, th- so this, this first, first tranche of questions that, that you shared uh, at a session yesterday, Jim. Um, is all about what's going on with students and food, and there are two things here. One is is that uh, we think food insecurity is probably happening on a larger scale than we perhaps appreciated. So about a third of students are saying that they're not, you know, they're not confident that they can get to the end, of the, you know, that they can get to the end of the week essentially, or you know, to when their next, the, the next kind of batch of money comes in, um, and then, you know they're worried about not, not being able to kind of make, you know, be, you know, eat. The other is, um, and this is I think probably a bit more indicative and bears you know more in, in-depth exploration. Um, but we 're seeing what looks like uh, eating disordered eating um, on a scale that perhaps is not fully appreciated in the sector and actually if you think about the scale of kind of student mental health challenges and the um, you know and, and, and particularly some of the context that 's happening in um, around kind of social media engagement and, and, and Instagram and, and, you know, and, and through body you know, body anxiety it, it is not surprising yeah. um, so that, you know so these, these, these are two things I think that um, you know Universities are already aware that, you know, food, food is part of the, of the challenge of the cost of living crisis. Um, they, they may have to be thinking about how do we tackle that on a scale that we hadn't really perhaps anticipated. Um, but also, to what extent actually is there support in place for students who do have eating disorders or who are going through periods of disordered eating? Um, we hear a lot about kind of broad mental health support, but, you know, to what extent is that specific support um, readily available?
0: Interesting. Now, now, now Alistair, um, just on the food insecurity issue, Um, We sort of know that food insecurity and the link between food insecurity and good outcomes is actually a really big established policy agenda in other countries, particularly in the US where, you know, there are kind of endless reports and uh, often universities will measure the number of students in food insecurity. Have we we got to go there?
1: Um, I think things government can do, I think the things universities can do here. I mean, um, if you look at it more widely... Um, right top of my list of, sort of things that government could do right now, which is not expensive and would really help, is targeted maintenance grants for those that really need it. And this has been something that me and many others have been banking on about for many years. It really isn't in government terms expensive. It would have such a positive impact on so uh, many issues for those students who are most in need. So targeted maintenance grants is something the government could do. They could have announced it, you know, yesterday, could announce it today. Absolutely. Um, for universities, I think universities have a responsibility here as well. You know, they do need to identify uh, those that are struggling to, to afford to eat, of course, and they need to offer support to that. I don't think it's a lack of money from universities or will. I think sometimes they find it quite hard to actually identify the people or make the support accessible. And I think this is where you work with student unions as well, because I think student unions are often better at being able to make that support uh, accessible. And some of it's money, you know, cash helps, yeah. but also, you know, it's, it's, um, it's food pricing. It's making sure that there are, uh, you know, affordable options. And also, um, linking to the, to the other point, affordable healthy options as well. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively easy to eat rubbish cheaply. It's harder to <laughs> eat healthy food cheaply. So I yeah. think there's an issue there as well. Interesting, yeah. And, and I guess some of that, by the way,
0: must be you know, often about the way in which perhaps co- catering contracts have been let and, you know, the agenda over the past 15 years probably hasn't been we've got to think about a substantial number of students that yeah. might not be able to afford food in, in perhaps the way that actually some housing policy does think about that, doesn't it, in terms of, you know, there are always some bed spaces, certainly in London, that are affordable and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's fair.
0: Yeah, good. Now, now, now Eve, um, this um, disordered eating thing, look, I- I- in a way, I guess lots of people in the sector would look at this and think, God, not another thing we were expected to replace the NHS on. You know, what, what on earth kind of practical difference could we make? But on the other hand, it seems to me that every, for, for, for 20 or 30 years, as long as I've been involved in the higher education sector, I walk onto campuses and I can't move for condoms uh, and sexual health advice and so on. But this isn't a thing, is it, that people are kind of talking about, that there's kind of voluntary action around. You don't see lots of charities on campus around this kind of stuff.
2: Yeah I think I think that's right. I think as well there's a sort of environmental piece about what it means to particularly in the residential model of university suddenly live in the same building with you know lots of other students in very close proximity and you're sharing kitchens and all that kind of stuff and what that does around the kind of shame narratives that often inform disordered eating in in that way and that that transition piece, particularly for people who might have um, developed disordered eating pre-university but also people that might develop that as a result of some of those environmental factors and others um, whilst they're at university. I think Debbie's point is really important on the um, we talk a lot about the need for mental health support at institutions and I think by and large we've won the argument that that should be there and that to an extent, it is an institutional responsibility to support students with their mental health, but we talk about it as this sort of amorphous blob of mental health. And um, quite like, you know, from my experience, quite a lot of the type of support that is delivered through those kind of professional services are Kind of just generic talking therapies or counselling. We don't talk much about um, specific CBT uh, support or EMDR or, what I, or you know all these different specific types that are, are costly and maybe more resource intensive. But I think it it would help us in the discussion if we sort of got smart on actually what kind of support for particular um, things like disordered eating, like anxiety, like depression might look like in order for universities to be able to provide that in a slightly more tailored way. Debbie, zoom out just a second. Mm.
0: And I mean, every week there's some other aspect of student health that comes in from one angle or another. And... There's there's rarely a moment, is there, where we take a step back and say, shouldn't there just be a kind of integrated student health agenda? Because, of course, students are citizens, but it does feel like there's a set of issues that demand a kind of dedicated agenda around student health, doesn't it?
3: I think that there is an argument for it. And, you know, if you think about it, and I think, but then, you know, you you, you know, so that kind of model where you say, oh, well, students are moving away from home, they might be detached from their local GP, they, you know, some, you know universities often have a kind of health provision, you know, it's, it's quite normal, I think, you know, or, or, or used to be for, for there to be a kind of, you know, a sort of, a, someone would come onto campus or so after there was a kind of university health service or something like that, where you went and got your, got your condoms from, mm. apart from anything else. Um, and... Uh, and and but then you know then you immediately kind of fall into the whole kind of isn't that the residential model and does that work for you know mature students or commuter students and, 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 and all of that so I suppose you would it would be it's one of those things that it would be really worth saying what are the what are the conditions that are most likely to affect or, you know that are most likely to affect this group so you might be thinking about you know and of course that that'll be aligned with other challenges so things like cost of living that's going to co- that that is likely to kind of come come along with a bunch of kind of health implications um, uh, you know moving away from home um, or indeed living living in the family home but having kind of quite a lot you know maybe maybe doing kind of precarious work or trying to balance kind of work and study what are the implications then for physical health and, and you know and uh you know just broad health and safety concerns um some ch- perhaps you know perhaps some challenges around kind of over you know, too much screen time, I don't know. So, you know, there's probably a batch of things that are kind of, you could argue, students are disproportionately affected by and then actually it makes sense to put a kind of package of yeah. measures in place. And I think, you know, and particularly in the context of mental health um, and, you know, ex- accepting that when you put someone under a kind of degree of cognitive stress, that, you know, that, that what, you know, one of the kind of responses to that may be an anxiety response, and that is going to manifest in a range of different ways. And from the point of view of a student, perhaps knowing that that might be coming <laughs> you know, is a sort of conversation that might be quite useful to have. Um, you know, as, as students kind of you know transition into university and begin to kind of find their way in, in those spaces and kind of are confronted with things that might not be familiar to them. Um, but but you know, but I I don't you know I don't hear any politician saying oh really what we really need is a whole kind of distinctive health agenda <laughs> for this one group of people. Not you know, and sure. actually and you know and, bef- and, and, and to be absolutely honest with you, Jim, before I see that I want to see a kind of you know a health agenda for you know. Um, You know, minoritized ethnicities who who don't, you know, who don't, or people people living in health deserts. I think, you know, I think that's a really hard political case to make and and quite a hard moral one as well sometimes.
0: Yes, I mean, it may be, of course, Alistair, very difficult to make a sort of student mental health case, but, uh, or a student health case in general, but there's definitely a set of things in terms of a kind of youth health agenda here, particularly around mental health. I mean, one of the stats that is in the piece on the blog, in, in, in the blog on, on mental health, is, is some stuff from the NHS, which doesn't separate students out from young people, but does reinforce lots of the stats we always see around mental health and, and the kind of crisis on youth mental health, the collapse of CAMs in schools. You know, there is a real problem here that politicians aren't getting at, particularly with, with young people.
1: Yeah, I mean, universities could pour tonnes of money and in resource into... Um, mental health support and you'd still only shift it a little away. I mean, you, yeah. you do need a, a whole sort of system uh, approach and absolutely, you know, the NHS playing a sort of lead role. Um, I think also we've got to be careful sometimes to, to be talking about just treating the the sort of symptoms um, rather than the cause. And I think there are things that universities can do to think about the impact um, of university life uh, on students' mental health. Um, and of course, you know, the the, the best way to address student mental health concerns is to try and reduce the number of students that need the support in the first place rather than just increasing the support. Yeah. Um, So, you know, if you've got... if you're getting an exponential rise in people who need mental health support you're always going to be sort of playing catch-up yeah. whereas in fact surely the thing to do is to actually look at you know whether it's anything from um the, the social environment or the accommodation deadline bunching, or, course design yeah. or the examinations yeah. or all yeah. of the other things that that can 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 uh, make student mental health worse uh, i think that's uh, a good place to start definitely a good place to look
0: great 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 stuff now um, every week on the show, we look back at how things were and how things came to be with academic registrar and sector historian, Mike Radcliffe. Live, here's the Hidden History of HE. So um, one of the things I think is interesting about the history of higher education is it is the
5: history of change. We change in higher education. Uh, and sometimes you can look at higher education and you think, oh, we're perfect. But then if you go back into the past, you can find people who thought it was perfect then, and we have changed. So it's important that we focus on that. And and one of the things that Alistair did in his welcome to us yesterday uh, was talk about one of the key things that the University of London did was it was one of the first places to admit women to degrees. And one of the big things we can do if we're looking back over the history of higher education is accept there was a time when particularly men thought it was entirely sensible that women should play no part whatsoever in higher education. Um, And therefore they were completely excluded. And I've got some great examples of regulations specifying exactly how excluded they've got to be. So we get a change in higher education, we get a change in thinking. In the beginning of the 19th century that coincides with the development of the University of London. And what the University of London does out of that special um, decision to be an examining university looking after two colleges is it allows the prospect of a college to be formed that consists of women. And so Bedford College is set up in the 1840s. Uh, it's very small scale, uh, over in Bedford Square, uh, but it starts to educate women. And there's a slow pressure for those women to be admitted to the university, admitted to take exams. Emily Davis uh, is wanting to set up a college. She advances the argument that in order to, for her students to excel, she wants them to take the exams. And so she pressures the universities to just let her have copies of the examination papers so that her ladies could take the same exams <laughs> that the men had taken. And they, they, they eventually decide there's no good argument that they cannot just give them a copy of the oh. exams. Something weird's happened. Go on. Carry on. So there's no reason why they they, uh, couldn't just have copies of the exams, uh, and so she she gets her students to take them. She sets up a college. She puts it in Hitchin to start with, halfway between London and uh, Cambridge, but finally she moves it to Girton um, in 1869 and then continues to pressure people for the ability for her students to educate alongside the men or in the same kind of a way, such that uh, we know that in 1897... Um, Philippa Fawcett um, takes the maths tripos, the the most important exam at Cambridge, and does better than all the men in her year. She would have been, the the best mathematician at Cambridge was called the senior wrangler, she would have been the senior wrangler, she was best at the people who took that exam that year. So it it shows shows where that problem is. Cambridge has a big vote on whether to let women in. The problem is that lots of alumni come back, they're all very anti this, they want Pembouche to stay the same. There's a great picture of a throng in King's Parade of hundreds of people. Uh, They've dressed up a a woman mannequin uh, in bloomers uh, on a bicycle and hung her from a a college building. They're very anti this Uh, and when the vote goes in favour of keeping women out, they get so excited, they go to one of the women's colleges and rattle the gates so extremely hard that the women inside are afraid of their safety. So you know they're, they're very keen on keeping things as they are. Other universities have toyed with the idea of what, should we continue to have separate education? So the idea of co-education was, was very alarming to people. So UCL makes great play of being the first place to do co-education, but two years before that it tried to have completely separate education, but in the same building. So what it did is it adapted its rooms so that there was a women's entrance and a men's entrance so that they couldn't mingle in the same corridors. And, and here's something for the timetable is amongst you. Uh, the women's lectures started half an hour later than the men's lectures. So they wouldn't even mingle in the corridors because they wouldn't be milling around at the same time. Clearly it didn't work. UCL went for co-education. Same happened in Manchester. They tried to up a separate women's college. It didn't really work. They got incorporated into, into Owens College and then into the whole thing. Kings has a separate women's department. Uh, they decide it's uh, safer to put it well out of the way and put it in Hampstead, uh, so that it's, it's not running it's not no risk of the students mingling at all. So we, we get those kind of things. Thomas Holloway is persuaded by his wife. He, he wants to give a large amount of money to, to, uh, to public good. He did want to set, found a mental hospital, but she persuades him he wants to found a, a women's college, uh, and he builds a, another splendid setup. But obviously, in this case, he puts it all the way out of Egham so far away you know, to make sure that the the women aren't going to have any problem with with mingling with the men there's a debate about how this now should turn and there's a a sense uh, at the beginning at the end of that uh, 19th century that maybe they should found a women's university for the country so uh, the university of london would be a a university for men uh, and there would be a women's university it doesn't happen we continue on that path i think what it does is it just shows us that people have had to campaign for change when people think, everything is fine, thank you very much. And it's just a reminder to each time to think, hang on a second, are we like the crazy Victorian blokes who think everything is
0: fine, but we're making a huge mistake, we actually need to change? Good. Now, finally this week, Elon Musk has predicted the end of work uh, and jobs altogether. Uh, And perhaps less alarmingly, there's a new report out on universities
1: and jobs, Alistair. So, yes, a a new report, uh, the University of London working with Demos, uh, exploring the role played by universities in preparing the workforce for the future. So this is looking at um, AI, the impact of AI on what the workforce needs in terms of skills, but particularly then saying, what do universities need to do about this? So, you know, are the the courses structured right? Is the curriculum now right in universities? Um, Are universities effectively uh, teaching things that are going to be no longer valuable to the the workforce uh, in the future? Um, So, yeah, big new report, uh, full of recommendations, both for government and for universities, for what to do uh, about um, skills for a workforce where we have um, AI um, playing a, a major role.
0: Eve? Often when we're thinking about um, quality or curriculum reform, we are thinking about the kind of gentle annual cycle of of these things with papers and committees and so on, but it is less than a year since ChatGPT sort of burst onto the scene and I get a sense that lots of those sort of rhythms, some of which your organisation was kind of responsible for and to some extent still is around the devolved nations, are, are too slow, aren't they?
2: yeah completely um, but and again, they've probably been too slow for a long time, <laughs> pre pre-Chat GPT sort of bursting onto the scene. Um, th- yeah, this idea of, of sort of agility in the face of technological developments like this is only going to become more salient as the pace quickens and the implications get sort of deeper and deeper um, and if, if universities and indeed their, their governing bodies are not having conversations about how to structure themselves to stay ahead of the curve on this then um, some institutions I think will, will be left behind.
0: Debbie, what, um, what, what 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 sort of skills do you think are going to be required next time you have to well, recruit an associate editor
3: at Wonky? Well, so I have an unpopular opinion, which is, is that this isn't really about AI at all. <laughs> I mean, because actually what, what, what I think is quite interesting about this report, and Richard Brown, the author, kind of dives quite deeply into what, you know, what is of quite a rich literature on skills and skills development. And I think I mean, the basic argument is to sort of say AI has um, hastened the need for universities to grip this question about employability skills. So we know that most graduate jobs are degree blind. It's a question of transferable skills. Um, we kind of know what those skills are. In this report, they're, they're articulated as the grasp skills, so the, you know, the interpersonal and relational and aspirational and just you know you look look up the acronym Um, uh, and really what Richard's kind of arguing is is that it is uh, genuinely quite hard to measure whether graduates have them Mm. Um, you know so you get an awful lot of graduate attributes you can get an awful lot in the curriculum about articulating the link between the skills development I think you know there's a real kind of tension for me about whether I think there's two, two, two tensions. One, one, one is about when we talk about skills, are we essentially just talking about people who think like me and act like me and present like me? Um, so we know if I'm, re- if I'm recruiting an associate editor, I'm just looking for a little mini Debbie, you know? Yeah. Just, you know, sort of in, in that, you know, and, and what, what I see is kind of great communication skills, looks like me kind of stuttering on stage, you know, and I'm like, oh, yes, that, you know, that sounds really authentic, you know? Um, uh, so that, you know, I think that's always a slight worry when you're talking about skills, and and, and, and the other thing is the kind of sheer genericness of them. Um, that you know, if I'm if I'm doing, you know, why, am, why why am I learning to make do my presentation and communication skills through studying Chaucer for three years? Like you know, in, like that. Universities, I think, are kind of having to really fight to make sense of that, and of course they do do that, and and you know, and, and, and there is kind of you know, you can do learning outcomes, and you know, the quality system has kind of articulated that. But I do feel that you know the more we get these reports that say well it's really all about the generic transferable skills that the the kind of the academic knowledge bit of the degree starts to feel like well is is that the right vehicle for this or or, or where does this sit in this kind of in this sort of constellation of meaning of education yeah. Yeah. and i don't think this report is saying that we shouldn't you know we should jettison academic knowledge at all you know, by by no means you know but um, but just that we need to kind of, yeah, I think, no, yeah, the sort of, yeah. As, as AI kind of advances the argument, I think I think the sector has got to kind of come to a different place on on the kind of tensions between those two things. Go on,
0: Eve, and then I'll go to Alistair.
2: I think this. I think a lot of the conversation about skills um, assumes, as you say, that that academic provision of a degree is the is the way in which those skills should be arrived at. And so then we immediately think about curriculum transformation and more innovative assessment design that makes sure that we get all of these other skills. What's interesting in the report is the overwhelming evidence around. Um, the extracurricular stuff that is not currently credit bearing or part of your traditional degree or compulsory in any way as being the things that develop those grasp skills and to link back to some of what we've already been talking about to enable students to engage in those things they're going to need food security and better maintenance grants and more time and resource to be able to engage in the kind of more holistic immersive student experience that a lot of them just do not have the luxury of doing right now.
1: Mm.
0: Yes I mean Alistair many of the these things just feel like we're adding more expectations in and at some point some expectations have to come out don't they?
1: Yeah I think that's fair but but actually I, I mean the reports kind of quite practical know, it says look at course content it says look at teaching methods it says look at engagement employers but it says particularly um, as Eve said that the extracurricular uh, side of things are so important. I, I must just say though Jim that um, because the sector absolutely needs more acronyms um, grasp skills are general relational analytical social and personal skills.
0: So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Eve, Alistair, Debbie, Mike, Michael Salmon who makes the show happen, everyone in the audience who's been with us for the live edition. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky.